Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now, we reran an entire episode from the very earliest days. Now, as we review these throwbacks, remember many of these recordings were made over a decade ago. I just ask that you keep that historical context in mind. Today in 2020, there's a vastly different consciousness. Risk has always asked our storytellers to err on the side of not being too cautious, to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible. That said, we also want our storytellers to be compassionate in their storytelling. But even in stories where you hear an overall compassionate context to the sharing, you might still notice some moments that strike you as cringeworthy today. A lot of these storytellers, and myself as the host of some of the oldest episodes, would probably have handled those moments differently today. As always, the title of the series, Risk, is itself a trigger warning. This week, the eighth ever Risk episode to appear in the world. It's from January 12th of 2010, and it's called The Strangest of Strangers. Risk. Risk.
cats and kittens. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. You just heard the Alan Cohen experience, and right now you're hearing Impala. Today we have another one of those special episodes where all the stories come from one particularly fun night at the Risk Live show in New York. The strangest of strangers are our focus. You'll be hearing tales of close encounters with persons unknown. If you've already been following our show, Ophira Eisenberg is no stranger. At the live show, she talked about a time an editor at Marie Claire magazine asked her to pitch them a story. And for one electrifying moment, she became... Mistress O. She asked me if I had any sex stunt pitches. Now, I didn't really know what a a sex stunt pitch was. I was like, is that, you know, after you finish intercourse, you stick your landing? Like, I didn't know what it meant. But she gave me some examples of ones they had run. They had run a story about a girl who used a make a dildo of her boyfriend's penis kit. A woman who entered an orgasm contest and won. (laughs) And a woman who wore a remote control vibrator in her underwear for a day. So she said, think about it and call me back in an hour. I had no ideas. I really wanted, of course, to write an um, article for a big glossy magazine. But I also wanted to do one thing in my life that I could actually send to my mother. But quickly I realized that wasn't going to happen. And I, I came up with an idea. I thought, I am going to ask them if they would like me to train as a dominatrix and then go out in New York and like try my hand at at how I do. Uh, I don't really think I'm suited to be a dominatrix, but I have the haircut, so (laughs) figured like half the costume, give it a whirl. Plus I was like, how bad could it be, like go to some bar and like insult some guys for kicks? You know, sounds like an average Tuesday night. So. I call her up, I really do think that Marie Claire magazine will not go for this pitch. I mean, I'm just picturing all the women in the office at Marie Claire, I'm picturing them like all with their manicures, dressed all in pink, you know, with like bubblegum shaded pumps, uh, drinking soy lattes. But I I call her up and I give her this idea and she's like, fantastic, loves it. You know, she wants me to start on it immediately and gives me $300 for a costume. (laughs) So now I have to do it. So I buy my little costume on St. Mark Street (laughs) and uh, I start investigating this world. I go to a munch, a munch, sounds like something vaguely lesbianic, but a munch is uh, where you meet a bunch of S&M enthusiasts at a non-S&M place like a diner. So I go to a diner and I talk to these different people about, you know, um, slave collars and how hard it is to get spanking material from Canada. And I'm slowly feeling more and more normal. Like, I don't get it. Not that there's anything wrong with these people, but they, for them, you know, doing and being involved in S&M is like finally scratching, you know, a really, really uh, upsetting itch. For me, it just sounds like you know, role-playing and theatrics. Like, frankly, I'm, I'm finding it exhausting just thinking about it. Then I go to a workshop where we learn about ropes and we learn about uh, uh, different handman, hangman structures and how to spank. Who knew there was a technique? But there is. 
And I leave that also going, I don't want to do this, but I have to do it. The article that I have to send in is due on Monday, and it's Saturday night, and I know I have to go to an S&M club and try out my skills, but I don't want to go. I am so afraid. Uh, I booked a, a stand-up show earlier that night at uh, Don't Tell Mama. <laughs> Appropriate. And I stuffed my costume in a knapsack, thinking that I'd do my gig and then like change into it at a Starbucks or something and then head off to the dungeon. <laughs> but I finished the gig and my friends are going around the corner to this gay bar for a drink and I think, you know what, that's what I need. I need a couple drinks, just get loosened up and to get some courage. So I, I go to the bar, uh, I order uh, double gray, gray goose on the rocks. You know, because I'm a journalist, I don't want to smell like alcohol. And, uh, and then I order another, and then I order another, and then I tell some people at the bar that I'm getting ready to go to an S&M club, and I have my costume in my knapsack, and of course they demand for me to put it on, which I do, because I'm drunk, and I think that'd be hilarious. So I throw it on, and we're dancing in the bar, and people are taking photos of me with their cell phone, having the time of their life, but it's quarter to 12, and I'm thinking, oh my god, I have to hit this S&M club, so I grab my friend David, who's there, by his tie, and I go, listen, you're coming with me to the sex club. <laughs> and he goes, okay. So we pile into a cab and we speed down to 7th Avenue. Now this S&M club, it's called Paddles, is on a 20, some people know it, perfect. Um, it's on 27th Street in between 6th and 7th, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't see it. They don't have a neon sign that's like, S&M Club. It's a, just a door painted black on the far end of a parking lot, totally unmarked, and then once you go through it, you head down four flights of stairs. I can barely negotiate the stairs in my heels. I am so drunk, and I am so scared, but I'm getting a contact high off David's excitement, because he cannot believe we are doing this. And we get in there, and there we are, like midnight, on a Saturday night at New York's premier S&M club, and the place is empty. <laughs> there are like seven people walking around bored in leashes. <laughs> but we started, you know, checking it out. There's all this equipment there that looks like, you know, sort of refurbished Nautilus equipment. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, straps and hangers and nets on the wall. And I see the bar and I go, that's what I need, another drink. And I head to the bar, it's called the Whips and Licks Cafe. Adorable. And I go to order a drink and I find out something terrifying. They don't serve alcohol. They just serve coffee, water, and soda. Because some people can't imagine the idea of putting anything in your body that would lessen the pain. Out of the corner of my eye, I see this bald-headed man crawling toward me on his hands and knees. I'm like, what is going on? And he bows at my feet and says to me in a whispered voice, in hushed tones, he goes, I am at your service, mistress, if you so choose. I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? But I, you know, I have to do something. So finally I just go, not now. Maybe later. <laughs> and he goes, thank you, mistress, and scuttles off. And I'm like, okay, this is pretty cool. I can do anything. Now, David has already gone up to the second level, and I follow him up, and he's looking around at all the different apparatuses, the hangman structure, and the stocks. 
Now, David is the type of gay man who loves Renaissance fairs, you know, so he wants to get in the stocks. <laughs> so I help live up the heavy top bar, and he gets in, you know, dangling out of it. He looks ridiculous. He goes, okay, now spank me. I'm like, what? He's like, come on, it'll be fun. So I just start tapping him kind of lightly on his jeans, you know, trying to talk the talk. I'm like, you're very bad, you're bad. But out of nowhere, a crowd appears to watch us. So I'm like, David, get into character. We're going to do a little show here. And he's like, all right. So I start hitting him a little harder. I'm like, yeah, you're very bad. You should need to learn to take your punishment with a smile. Yeah. Are you okay? He's like, yeah. But I feel a, shoulder, a hand on my shoulder. I turn around, and this guy introduces himself. His name is Bill. He's the owner of the club. He realizes I'm new, and he would like to help me out. And he has a bag of stuff that he wants me to you know, use. So he hands me a ruler. Now, a ruler adds a whole new dimension to the experience, right? Like now, I'm an evil headmistress, right? And David is a bad speller, you know? So I'm whacking away on David, and Bill stands by, and he give, he's giving me pointers. He's like, okay, now aim for the more fleshy part of the bum. Very good. Now paddle between the legs. Now alternate between hitting the fleshy part of paddling to, between the legs. And then he goes, oh my God, you're a natural. And I'm so excited that I might be Bill's star pupil that I don't realize that I am beating the shit out of David. Until I hear this little voice go, soy chai latte. Soy chai latte. Soy chai latte. Because that was our safe word. So... <laughs> I pull him out of the stocks, and he seems really happy. And now all these strangers want to be punished by me. So I start with the bald man that crawled up to me earlier, because he was first. And he, uh, he just wants to be spanked on his boxers. And again, I try to talk the talk, but I can, I'm not very good at it. I can only think of dumb things to say. So I start going, you're very bad. You're very bad. Why are you bad? Tell me, why are you bad? And finally, he answers. He goes, because I've been thinking of younger and younger girls all the time. Note to self, never ask someone in an S&M club why they are bad. Just assume everyone there is bad and that's just fine. <laughs> So uh, he, I finish up on him, and I trample a guy, and then I meet this guy, Rich, who says he can really take pain. Now Bill hands me an electric bug zapper. Like you tap at your hand and you get an electric shock, and this guy says he can take five of them. He's wearing a necklace, um, <laughs> that's all. And he turns his back towards me, spread eagle, and I can see his defenseless balls just hanging there but I try to ignore it and just focus on his bare ass. And I touch the paddle to him very lightly and he crumples and falls and then gets up and goes, again! So I do it again and he crumples and falls and then goes, again! And the third time, I kind of miss. And he screams and falls to the floor and I run to him, kind of hugging him, going, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so sorry, are you okay? That's what I, Mistress O, said to my submissive. Oh my God, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? And he turned and looked at me and laughed. And Bill laughed and said, you know, I think you're the cheeriest dom we have ever met. He was like, I don't think you're suited to this. 
Uh, maybe you would like a job as the coat check girl at the S&M club. He's like, or maybe better yet, why don't you come back tomorrow and consider switching sides? Thank you. call that little tune welcome back zappa look up jesse krakow on myspace that's k-r-a-k-o-w now keith powell is on 30 rock every week playing the role of twofer he is the sweetest gentleman you will ever meet and he's about to spin a little yarn for us called i thought you were my friend when i was 20 to 23 years old, I used to run a theater company. I was an artistic director in Wilmington, Delaware. And, uh, I, you know, it was really kind of cool as a, as a young kid. Like, I, I had, um, you know, um, Lynn Redgrave come and do a play for me and, and Jasmine Guy and Keith David. And I had all these really cool people come and, and I was, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And, um, what I would always do at, at every play that I produced is I would sit uh, uh, in the lobby of the theater uh, while the play was happening. And so that everybody, every time you know, there was an intermission or after the play or before the play, I would um, come out and, uh, and people would come out and uh, would uh, talk to me. I wanted to be accessible to everyone. Uh, one particular play, one particular time, I um, I ran into some guy who um, very much wanted to see me after the show, and uh, you know tears were running down his eyes, and he was so moved by the production, and he said to me, you know, I I see God in this play. This is so amazing. I see God, and. Uh, I, you know, I, I was like, okay, uh, thanks. Um, um, and we started talking, and he had told me that he was a minister and that he um, wanted to talk about the play at uh, his next week's sermon. Um, and uh, he wanted to get all of the people uh, in his church to come and see the play. And I started going, well, I see God in the play, too. I, I, I totally, I mean, you know, like, I'd see God in it, in, like, the real housewives of Orange County if, if um, like, it got me a group sale. And <laughs> so, so, like, so, um, you know, he said, well, you, you've got to come. You've got to come to see uh, this, this uh, see me talk about um, how God is so great in your play at, at the sermon this weekend. And let me explain this guy to you. Uh, what should I call him? I'll call him Scruffy because he was, uh, you know, like he had a, like, uh, he always had a five o'clock shadow. He was about 300 pounds and he had that thing 
that well you're like well how do I explain how do I say it he had a male version of a vagina <laughs> so <laughs> so it was like an extra thing down there <laughs> um, you know and he had this wild crazy hair thick glasses he was about five eight and he spoke with this very thick southern accent and um, uh, but he was a really cool guy. He was really nice, and he was, and you know, like he was, he was a very, you know, sweet-natured person. And he saw God in my play. So uh, I went to the um, I went to the church, and uh, it, it, you know, it was a really nice church. And he he gave the sermon, and he did talk about how everybody should come and see this play that I've produced, and. Um, a whole bunch of people signed up. I got a great big group sale. And um, after that, he came to me and he said, you know, I would really love to have a drink with you because you're just, you seem like such a fascinating person. And I said, sure, why not? Let's, let's, go, and, let's go and have a drink uh, with a Baptist minister. So I, I went and had a drink with him. And, you know, like the first time we hung out, um, we talked about, well, we talked about God and, you know, plays and sports, which wasn't very um, good for me because I didn't know much about sports. Um, because, at the, you know, I was raised in a house with four women and uh, I, I never really learned anything about sports, but he seemed to know a lot about sports. And so I was like... Sure, whatever you whatever you say. Um, and then you know, the second time we hung out, uh, we we talked about politics, and um, I remember very specifically, I asked him what his position was on gay marriage, and I was explaining, you know, I was going on and on about what my politics were about, you know, marriage and homosexuality, and you know how churches should be open and free and God is about love and, and you know, you should, uh, you know, the churches should be about that as well. And he really agreed with me. Um, uh, by this point in the story, I think I should start t explaining how, uh, how very affectionate I am. Um, I talk to people, you know, obviously with my hands as I've been doing and <laughs> I grab on people's shoulders. I, you know, like I put my arm around people and I kiss people on the cheek. I kiss people on the cheek when I, you know, when I leave them. Um, you know, I, I would consider myself a very affectionate person. By the third time that we hung out is when it got weird. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so we had, okay, so, so let me explain. The third time that we went out, um, we went to go and see uh, a play. It was a touring production of um, I don't know, it was a play with James Earl Jones in it, and James Earl Jones was spitting on me um, because I was sitting in the front row. That's all I remember about it. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't wash my... Well, I did wash my face immediately because I'm a germaphobe, but, but, but I told everybody I didn't wash my face. Um, so, uh, okay. So we sat down um, afterwards, and we had like a, a, like a mid-afternoon lunch because it was a matinee, and... We sat down, and I saw that he was getting really frustrated and, and kind of he was moving around in his seat a lot, and I, and I saw that he had something to say to me, and 
I was like, are you okay? What's going on? What's wrong? And he's like, it's, you know, it's just... I really like to take you home tonight, but, um, I, I, you know, I, we've been dating for three weeks. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, you know, you only kiss me on the cheek, so I don't really know how you, you really feel about me, but I'm really attracted to you, and I, and I really would like to take you home, and I don't know why <laughs> we, we, we have to keep playing this game. <laughs> So then I started thinking back. <laughs> like, at that moment, like, I started thinking back to all the things I, uh, I always paid. Because I was very, I was very grateful that he, you know, like, he, he got his congregation to come and see my plays. So I always paid. Um, I always kissed him on the cheek goodbye. I always put up my arm around him when we walked. Um, I, I always laughed at his really dumb jokes. And um, I always ended every evening with, this was fun, we should do it again sometime. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I realized, I'm like, holy shit, I'm a tease. <laughs> and it was like, you know, it was like one of the, it was like we were in a movie and, you know, actually, if we were in a movie, like, you would look at the screen and go, oh, God, that would never happen in real life. Because I started going, I did, I literally, I did like this. Oh. 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 <laughs> so loud that the entire restaurant heard us. <laughs> and I'm like, listen, I'm not gay. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to lead you on. I'm not gay. And he was just like, no, I don't believe that. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I was like, well, why don't you believe it? I really, I'm not gay. And he's like, well, no man living in Delaware <laughs> would dress like you do, believe in politics like you do, and never watch a sports game and be straight. <laughs> so you, you have to be gay and... Besides, aren't you in the theater? <laughs> My girlfriend hates me telling the story, by the way. <laughs> uh, so needless to say, the, the third date ended uh, very strangely. <laughs> but I should have really, I, you know, honestly, I should have expected this because the play that he met me at, the play that I produced, was an all-male version of The Women. So perhaps, perhaps my choice in plays might say something about me. <laughs> um, but I consequently uh, have learned to, to always begin a bromance with, listen, I am straight, no matter what I may do from here on out. <laughs> And um, I consequently started learning uh, um, a lot about baseball. So, <laughs> go Phils. Thank you very much. Keith 
Powell. You can find him at powelltothepeople.net. And once again, you're hearing the incredible Impala from their album, Night Full of Sirens. You can learn more about them at scottbomar.com. As you can hear, we love music, all kinds of it. So if you are what we would call a musician, write to kevin at risk-show.com and we'll put your stuff on the show. Now, I believe Mather Zickel is the only man on the planet named Mather Zickel. He's an old friend of all of us in the state, and in both dramatic and comic roles, he's one hell of an actor. He was in Rachel Getting Married and I Love You, Man, and we call his story I Love You, Man. It's a story that took place during my freshman year at NYU when I was living uh, actually only a couple of blocks from here, a few blocks away, uh, 3rd Avenue North Dorm, which is on 3rd Avenue and 11th Street. And it's uh, you know right across from the Lowe's Theater, which, which in 1988 was still a crack house, actually. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> um, neighborhoods changed. So, you know, I was very excited to come to NYU. I, you know, I, I didn't want to be anywhere else in the world. I wanted to be in, in New York. I was very excited to be studying theater with, with other people who, you know, who shared this, this passion and interest. And, and yet, somehow, I still felt lonely and isolated, as I'm sure you know, a lot of new students must have felt at NYU or any college like when, they, when they first arrived. And it was very disappointing to me because I, you know, I thought like, this should feel like home. This should feel like home, and why do I still have these feelings? And I actually grew up very close to the city in Westchester. And uh, you know, I felt like I was familiar with the city, and why did it feel, why was I still, you know, feeling these, uh, you know, the, this sense of, uh, this lack of confidence maybe, this um, isolation from other people. Um, you know, and I, I took myself very seriously. I, uh, uh, you know, I was shy. It was hard for me to meet people. And, uh, and I like to drink. I like to drink a lot more than I do now. Um, and there were several incidents in college where I would drink to, to blackout status, which I don't know if you know blackout, but um, it means functioning somewhat, somewhat ambulatory, but um, completely unaware of your actions and certainly leaves you with no memory the next day of what might have happened. So I would, you know, there were a few incidents where I would, I would wake up the next day with bruises um, you know, eyeglasses crumpled up into a little ball. Um, I would have friends tell me how they had prevented me from, you know, from entering the subway system through a loose grate in the sidewalk, or, uh, you know, or how I had violently attacked a bunch of Christmas trees outside of a deli for no reason. Couldn't remember any of it, none of it. Um, on this particular night, I was going to a party. This was, uh, yeah, fall of 88. First freshman year, first semester, I went to a party on the Lower East Side that a friend of mine was throwing, and um, and this was interesting because she had an apartment, and no one had an apartment freshman year. I mean, this seemed very very adult. Everybody else was living in dorms and uh, you know eating cafeteria food. And I, I went to this party, uh, and I brought a fifth of Jack Daniels uh, because even though I was 18 years old, I looked 35. <laughs> when, as, as a teenager, and no one ever carded me. I could always buy, buy alcohol. 
And I, you know, and I remember going to this, you know, up the twisty tenement staircase in you know whatever building, you know, down on the Lower East Side, and thinking like it just looks so old and cramped and small. You know, I'm like I wasn't used to this. I thought I knew New York, but this was. You know, this was new, and like, was I going to wind up in a place like this? And of course, the answer is yes, and it's <laughs> still true to this day. Um, I don't remember much about the party. I, I, you know, I got drinking pretty fast. I, you know, I remember feeling warm and like, you know, and, and chatty, and you know, the level in the bottle just, you know, kept going down and down and down, and eventually it was empty. And uh, I'm pretty certain that no one else had had a sip of it. I think I'd been slugging the whole bottle myself. Um, and I took this as a cue to, you know, wrap things up uh, and go home. And, you know, and quit while I was ahead because I'd had a nice time. I was feeling kind of lit, you know, I was warm and like feeling good. And I felt good about the party. Like, you know, things had gone well, you know, nothing, nothing happened. I don't know who I talked to or what it was, you know, but it was, it was fine. It's like, all right, let's get out of here. So, and I remember going down this, you know, the vertiginous stairs, you know, down, you know, out of the building and then out into the, the cold November night. Um, it was around the holidays, I think. I think it was a holiday party. Um, this was all about probably within 10 or 15 blocks of the dorm. It wasn't very far. Um, and I think it was probably on Houston. Or, you know, but honestly, it could have happened right outside this theater. It could have been right out in Lafayette. I really don't know. But, um, a, you know, a, a homeless guy was, you know, sitting against the building and he asked me for some change. And I, you know, immediately started digging into my pockets. I mean, you know, I was I had high on this, this cocktail of 15 parts Jack Daniels and one part milk of human kindness. And, you know, I was just, yes, of course, my good man it would be my illimitable pleasure to give you a dime. You know, and... Um, <laughs> And this is kind of where the lights go out. Um, you know, I don't know, anybody's ever drunk too much or taken too many drugs knows what I'm talking about. If you, if you haven't done that, good for you. Uh, but I can describe it in cinematic terms. What, what happens there is, a, is called a jump cut. Um, there was, next thing I remember I was I was sitting in Ray's Pizza on Third Avenue. Still in the neighborhood, good thing, you know. Um, and I'm sitting in the back at a table and I'm having pizza and this man is sitting right across the table from me. And I was, I think, pretty much in the middle of telling him my life story. Um, I was getting, you know, some just some heavy shit off my chest. And I'm fairly certain that I was openly weeping. I really think I was just like, tears are just pouring down. And, I, and I, I think, I don't remember what we were talking about, but I think the crux of the conversation had to do with, you know, my childhood, you know, and feeling sort of alone and, you know, sense of ennui growing up in Westchester County. And, you know, and, and, and like, and, you know, and then getting sent away to, to a boarding school in Connecticut before I was really ready to leave home. And, and I was lonely and it was like more than three hours away from my friends and my family. And I was surrounded by people who didn't get me necessarily and then you know this is just followed by you know going to NYU where you know here I am I'm studying acting at a private university and and I don't even have you know I don't even have to pay my student loans you know and I probably wouldn't even be able to 
if I had to, and yet I'm still filled with this feeling of uh, this lack of confidence and, you know, and, this, and this sneaking suspicion that I might not actually be the, the, the unique, unusual individual that I suspected I might be. <laughs> and, and you know what, in my dating life, what a fucking joke that is, you know? I mean, my, my, I, I don't have a dating life. You know, I was still desperately in love with this girl from high school who did not share my feelings and probably never would. And I mean, fuck love. Fuck it. I mean, fuck it. You gotta be tough in this life. And this guy knew what I meant. This guy knew what I meant. You know? I mean, like, you know, he was sitting there and he was so calm and, you know, had this serene sort of like, like knowing presence, and I'm, I'm almost certain that this guy had seen tougher times than me. I mean, this guy knew, I mean, what, you know, with the whole not having a home thing? And, you know, I mean, he knew what I meant, and I, like, and I just, I trusted him. He seemed wise and resilient, and, and I thought kind. I thought kind. And before I had a chance to really ponder any of these questions, we have another jump cut. Um, we have a jump cut, except not to another scene. We have a jump cut right to the end of the movie. Um, like past the credits, past the, uh, you know, past the funny outtakes at the end, you know, past the MPA rating symbol. I mean, the, you know, the curtain was down, the lights were up, this was over. Um, I woke up the next day. I was, uh, you know, still in my clothes from the night before, uh, obviously very hungover. Um, and I shared a suite with uh, five other guys, you know, it was like a common room and three bedrooms. And, and I, you know, I walked out and they looked at me, you know, they looked at me like I had just returned from an alien abduction. I mean, like, they looked at me, you know, they, it was as if I was gonna start speaking in tongues or, or, you know, burst into flames or something. I mean, they were, they said, like, when I came home the night before that I was so, I was acting so drunk they thought I was kidding. Um, I thought I was doing a bad drunk act because I was literally slamming against walls and falling down. I almost drowned in the toilet. Um, my roommate had socked me in the chest because at some point I had passed out and had stopped breathing. So he kind of like, you know, to get, get the motor running again. Um, and I walked, I was, I was like, I, I, you know, I went to find some breakfast. So I walked out and I was heading out of the dorm. I was walking out of the door of the dorm and the security guard was like, hey man, where's your friend? <laughs> because I tried to give the homeless guy a home. <laughs> and I, was I don't remember any of it, you know, and I and the, <laughs> the card was I, I thanked him for you know I guess you know it was probably using his best judgment not not to let the guy in. I thanked him for that, and he was like he was like oh no I would have let him in. He just didn't have any ID. <laughs> um, I I look you know I think back on this, and uh, you know it was clear that I wanted to not only did I want to connect with someone, but it was very important for me to feel like a good person and that I was doing the, I was doing good stuff. I was doing the right thing. I don't know what this man must have thought of me. Um, 
who knows? I mean, you know, he came along with me. He, he got pizza, you know. He, uh, you know, he decided to hang out with me for an hour or hours, however long we were together. I mean, obviously, obviously the idea of free pizza was very enticing. Um, you know, he could have just been waiting for a good opportunity to rob me. I don't know. Um, I like to think that, you know, that he just saw like a mixed up drunk kid who, you know, had bought him dinner and, you know, offered him a place to stay and, you know, and probably just needed a little looking after. Not get hit by a car or something. Uh, you know, just a little, an exchange of, of, uh, of, of holiday brotherhood between strangers. Or he was thinking that there was gonna be an exchange of cash for a holiday hand job. I don't know, you know. Um, in which case, he, he went home disappointed. As far as I can tell. <laughs> Thank you. From the depths of the darkness comes a light. light that does not appear without risk. Peter Sillett, creator of beautiful, timeless songs. Another old friend of mine. Be sure and check out more of Peter's stuff at petersillett.com. Now, Starley Kine is a contributor to This American Life. She's hard at work on a book right now about self-help called It Is Your Fault. Here's Starley with her story, Familiar Pattern. I got a job in L.A. for a month uh, in August. And first of all, speaking of strangers, like on the plane ride to L.A., I was, you know how on, I wasn't on Virgin, but you know on Virgin there's those movies? They play the cartoons and they're all appealing and stuff. And... There's that one part where they're like, for the 1.001% of people who have never, don't know how to put a seatbelt on, this is for them, there's like a matador and like the bull's all annoyed and stuff. I actually was sitting next to a woman who had never put a seatbelt on, for real. And it was like this totally amazing thing where she was like actually hitting the thing back and forth and like looking at me and she was like, and I don't know if she, like she just kept, like she was really small and kept looking up and she wanted me to like show her and she was, I didn't think there was that many ways that you could get it wrong, but she like figured them all out. And I had to like guide her through it. And then I had to, I wasn't planning on using the internet because I thought it was like a reprieve and I could just read a book, but then I actually had to log on and pay for the internet so I could like write all my friends immediately and tell them that I had just seen this happen. And then I wrote to my friend Julie, who had once told me she had been in an airport in Poland and seen two guys installing a light bulb. And like she had been, so then I was like, we figured it out. It was like, I feel like we were like collecting these rare sightings. And then I got to LA and I did this weird job. And when I first got there, I had to get a rental car. And um, my little, I'm from LA, and my little sister also lives in LA. And she had started working for this mysterious stranger named Mr. Cohen. And, and he lived in Bel Air and he had a huge mansion. He was a billionaire. And she had signed some sort of agreement 
so she couldn't tell me what he did, and I would like hit her on the arm and try to make her tell me, and she just wouldn't. She wouldn't disclose anything. But she said he didn't know her name, and he'd never seen her. Like the mansion was so big that like there were other wings, and he, he hadn't, she'd never met him, and she'd already been working for him for like three weeks. And then she had just called to tell me that uh, he had finally said her name, and it was like this big deal. And by that point, I'd actually had pulled up to a gas station at that point, and she had she was and I'd put the nozzle in, and my little sister called me, and she was telling me all this exciting thing, and Mr. Cohen, and my little sister's totally crazy, and she talks fast like me, and we're all blah, 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 blah. and then I had to go in to like pay for the gas, and I'm still on the phone with her, and she's like this big victory of hers, and I get back into the car, and I turn the engine on, and I drive off, and the I'd never filled up the gas tank, and the nozzle was still in the gas tank, and I just I had taken it off. I'd pull, ripped it from its seams. And all these men started running out and coming and like covering me and it was like this big operation. And I was like, oh, I don't want to pay for this. This is not, this is, no, this is misunderstanding. Like I was, as though I wasn't guilty of this thing that it just totally out of my car. And then they made me sign an agreement and I was like, oh no, Mr. Cohen owns a gas station and he's got this is the same agreement my sister signed. And I thought he like owned everything and I thought I'd figured it out. And then I kind of forgot about it because then LA is really weird and lots of surreal things happen there all the time and like the month passed and then I had to go return my rental car and I went to the rental car agency and there was a guy like a youngish guy working at the rental agency and like right away he was totally hitting on me like really really hard and like it was just like he saw my earrings and he thought they were really cool and like he said I think they're totes hip and you could tell that he'd never said totes before and you're just waiting for like a special lady like me to come in so he could test out this new hip vocabulary he'd learned on Facebook and then and I had like a book and he was all like interested in my book and he's like what do you do and I was like I'm a writer and he was like oh well, maybe you'll write about this and I was just like why are you everyone in my family like every relative I see like at Thanksgiving who thinks like eating a piece of turkey means we're gonna go in the book and he just was like such a nerd and thought I was so so cool and so arty and like I was the first anything that he'd ever met and he was just layering it on so thick and he was like do you need a ride home after you return your car and I was like, I guess so. And he like acted as though he was going to give me a ride, but it was actually like a whole department in the agency. But it was like a high school kid who was like, do you need a ride home, but was borrowing his dad's car. Like he had this whole plan out. And then I was feeling pretty, you know, I didn't care about him at all. He was a nerd. He was working for the rental car agency. It was totally random. And then I like returned the car and he's still flirting with me. And then he like looks at the computer screen and he's like, did you get in an accident? And I was like, no, that's crazy. And he was like, well, it says something about a gas station on my screen. And I was like, I, that's, that is totally a misunderstanding. I had nothing to do with that. That just made, I mean, that, that, they said it was fine. And I got really defensive really quickly. And like, I started breathing kind of hard. And I could see this like flicker of like doubt on his face. And I feel like flicker of doubt is kind of like a literary term. You read it and I never, but it actually is very real. And it looks like, like they, and then they kind of like go back to smiling at you. And he was like still willing to like give me the benefit of the doubt, but there's something, fear had definitely crossed his face. And then he was like, well, Will, I'm gonna call the number on my screen and see what happens. And so then I was like, okay. And I was just like all like braced and like started to pace around. And I like strange, other strangers were coming in, they were staring at me and I was getting all huffy. And then 
He calls the gas station and talks to them for a long time. I'm getting really tense and really stressed out. And then he hangs up and he's like, they say you owe them $1,000. And I was like, I lost it. Like I started crying and I was like, I don't have any money and you don't understand and this is crazy and this is misunderstanding and this is horrible and everyone's against me and this is horrible. And I was like, just like tears like streaming down my face and like the flicker of doubt turned into like his actual face. Like it just like covered it and you couldn't recognize him anymore. And he was so terrified of me and like he just didn't know what to do. And he wasn't even trying to calm me down. I was just like, like breathing, you know, like sobbing kind of breathing and all the other strangers had cleared away. And then he was like, finally, like, you, wait, wait, you know, I told them, I told him that it's okay and we're gonna take care of it and I don't believe him. And then I was just like, oh, okay, that's, that's great. And I was like trying to play with my earrings so he would remember like the salad days of before when he liked my earrings and I was trying to twirl them around. And but then he, but he wasn't having any of it and he was just so petrified and he didn't, we didn't even like talk about the ride home anymore. Like I ended up just like walking like two miles to my friend's house. And then afterwards I realized that it basically, this whole experience was basically like the most accelerated relationship I'd ever had. Like <laughs> it was just exactly the same. It was like speed dating, but also like speed falling off the pedestal and like speed failing to recognize the person you're with. And then of course speed breaking up. And it was, you know, we went through all the same levels where at first they think I'm like totally cool and I'm like darling and adorable. And they're just like, oh, she does crazy things because she's an artist. And then we like, it starts to get more serious and we like get into some fight on the street like after seeing Inglorious Bastards where one of us doesn't like it as much as the other and then I end up like defending the Nazis because I'm like so worked up and I'm like, they know they had their reasons for doing this and it gets totally blown out of proportion. And then like strangers are staring at us on the street and then finally like we have the ultimate fight where I'm just like, I don't want to cry but I of course cry because I think that's like a good tactic at this point even though I've done it like 500 times and I'm like, no, it always works. This time when the tears come, they're not going to, they're going to love it. But instead, they're just like, please, you have to leave my life forever. <laughs> like, never, like, it just, like, erases anything that came before. And also, I feel like the lesson is, like, a lot of drama could probably be avoided if I listened to my family less and spent more time listening to the actual person that I'm dating. Because, like, my little sister is the one who started this whole thing, in my opinion. And I feel like maybe... You know how you make like the list of like the people that you've dated? And I feel like I can just include him on this list now. I can just like I don't know his name, but it's all like nicknames anyway. Like I have like my list is like dog park guy, male model vegan, sex with socks, and now like rental car guy. <laughs> it just to me seems like he just goes right in there. And also I feel that this other thing that's happened is that you know how I've just totally like lost all perspective on him and I think he's awesome now, this rental car guy, and I totally let him get away. And he's so cool and he's right about everything because he did say that I was gonna write about the experience and I'm here right now writing about it. So I've lost the perfect man. Really cheap condoms is all I wear and I take risks. Didn't want to go to work, so I called a bomb scare. I take risks. Well, I leave my cell phone on when I fly. I take risks. And I only drink whenever I drive. I take risks. That's Stucky and Murray. They sing funny songs. And if you want to see what their butts look like, 
You can find those on the front cover of their album, Rock Bottom. Here's a man who's just a natural. Andy Borowitz is hilarious about 24 hours a day, probably cracking wise in his sleep even. He writes for The New Yorker, comments on pop culture on every TV network in existence, and how he does all that and maintains his comedy blog, BorowitzReport.com, we may never know. Here's Andy with a story we call The Trouble with Tootie. So we're talking about strange people we've met. Um, Okay, I was walking into an elevator at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in Beverly Hills, and I saw a guy walk into the elevator after me, and I looked up, and I saw that the guy was O.J. Simpson. Now, when we think of O.J. Simpson, we all think of the same thing, right? Author. (laughs) Great, great writer. I love his work. But, But this was before that. This was like before all that bad stuff happened. This was before he began his tireless search for the real killers of his wife. This is before he proved that it's easier to get away with murder than stealing sports memorabilia in Vegas. It's true. This was way back before then. This was, this was pictured, this was 1987, and OJ back then, he was just like one of the most famous guys in America. He's a good guy. He was in commercials, he was in like the Naked Gun movies. He was just the nicest guy in America. And I don't know how you are whenever you run into like a super famous person, but I just kind of shut down. And so basically I ignored OJ and just looked at my shoes. And so we rode in the elevator together in silence for a couple of floors, and then the doors opened again, and another guy got in, and I looked up, and it was international pop star Robert Palmer. So suddenly, this is no longer an elevator ride. This is like some kind of fucked up VH1 show. And it's like me and a guy who's addicted to love and a guy who's addicted to cocaine. And we're all in an elevator together going God knows where. And we go up a couple more floors and the doors open again and Robert Palmer goes out and the door is closed. So now it's just me and my old friend OJ again. And for the first time, OJ looks me like right in the eye and he says in this really impressed tone of voice, Robert Palmer. (laughs) And my takeaway from this whole incident is like, OJ Simpson, what a nice guy. I really just thought, the nicest guy in the world. Now, my story tonight is not about O.J. Simpson. I'm just bringing this up because tonight's show is about strange people we've met. And so, like, O.J. Simpson is kind of like a benchmark because in the time I was in L.A., which was most of the 80s, O.J. Simpson was not the strangest person I met. That would be a couple years earlier when I was working as a staff writer on the sitcom, The Facts of Life. It's true. Yes, we have some Facts of Life fans here. When I was single and I was dating a woman of a certain age, 
the facts of life was catnip. It was always something I would bring up at a date. It was a great thing, but um, it wasn't, it didn't feel that way at the time. It didn't at all. Let me tell you what my experience was like on that show. Um, now, first of all, um, I guess some of you have seen the facts of life. For those of you who have never seen it, congratulations, I want to say. Um, it, uh, how can I describe it? It was kind of a coming-of-age yarn, if you will, about four teenage girls at this exclusive prep school in Peekskill, New York. There was Blair, the sarcastic, beautiful one, and then Natalie, the sarcastic, chubby one, and then uh, Joe, the sarcastic tomboy, and then Tootie, the sarcastic sister. So that was the four girls, and then watching over them was um, their mentor, uh, Edna Garrett, also known as Mrs. Garrett, or when the girls were in full Fonzie mode, Mrs. G. So that was the show. Now here's a little piece of Facts of Life trivia. It was the worst television show ever produced. That's just a little bit of trivia. You can look it up. You can look it up. Um, so you might ask, like, given how massively the show sucked and how much contempt I had for it, like, what was I doing writing on the facts of life? Well, the answer is I was just doing it for the money. I was, I was the sarcastic whore on the facts of life. But you gotta, like, give me a break, because I was, like, right out of college. I was, like, broke. I didn't even have a car. I was, like, taking the bus which in L.A. is akin to eating out of a dumpster. <laughs> so I remember my very first day um, on the job, and I had to go pitch a story, which is right into you, and you're selling a story to the executive producers of The Facts of Life. Now, these were two middle-aged women whose job it was to make sure that The Facts of Life did not lose its edge. And... <laughs> And it was a very, very crucial year because the show was changing settings. It was moving away from the boarding school into a new setting, a gourmet cheese shop cleverly named Edna's Edibles. It was a move fraught with risk. There was no margin for error. Tensions were very, very high. And this was the hornet's nest that I was walking into. So I went into their office to pitch my first story, which was a story called Gamma Gamma or Bust. And this was a story, uh, a fan of my work. That's good. That's good. Never read your shit in The New Yorker, but that thing was awesome, that Gamma Gamma. I love that. Well, anyway, so I pitched them this story, and it was all about Blair the sarcastic, beautiful one, doing anything she could to get into the exclusive Gamma Gamma sorority. And the executive producers sort of took it in, they, they sat back and listened to it, and then finally one of the women spoke up, and she said, well, that's a really interesting story, Andy, but what's the fact? <laughs> and I was like, say what? And she said, every Facts of Life show has a fact a moral, a lesson, if you will, some deeper truth that the audience can take away from it. Now suddenly like the room started spinning. Because like I realized 
they don't know that this show sucks. They think they're doing like fucking Moliere here or something. And like, you know, I'm a comedian, like I'm, I'm just a wise guy, so I don't think in terms of moral lessons. I just don't. So I'm just like racking my brain. I'm thinking like, a stitch in time saves nine, or neither a borrower nor a lender be. I'm just trying to think of what the fucking facts could possibly be. And with their assistance, because they were a little bit more evolved in this area, um, we decided the fact of my show would be be yourself. So we were good, we had a story, we had a fact, and I went away and I wrote the script. And I decided I would try something that really hadn't been tried before on the facts of life. I would try to write funny things for the girls to say. <laughs> because it was, it was a comedy, you know, it was, it was a, a titular comedy, so theoretically, when the actresses said things, they should be to elicit laughter. I just thought it was worth a try. I'd just give it a try, see what happened. So I handed the script in, and dead silence. Like, I don't hear anything back. And I don't know if any of you here are in the writing game, that's really not a good sign. When you hand something in, you're expecting a response, and there's nothing. So after a couple weeks, I finally go up to one of the executive producers, and I said, um, have you got a chance to read my script? And she said, well, we have, Andy, and uh, quite frankly, we were pretty disappointed in it. I said, well, well, what's wrong? And she said, well, you didn't get Tootie at all. And I, and I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, the way you wrote Tootie, she sounds just like Natalie. And I said, well, you know, maybe that's because I understand what you're saying, but, but maybe that's because you know, they're both kind of sarcastic characters. And she was deeply offended by that. She said, they're not both sarcastic. Natalie is wisecracking and Tootie is sassy. <laughs> and she said, and you know, the way you wrote them, you can't tell them apart. And I was like, well, I think the audience can tell them apart because one's fat and one's black. <laughs> Well, needless to say, I was not asked back for a second season on The Facts of Life. And, you know, this show tonight is all about risk. And I guess the risk I'm taking tonight is I'm revealing not only did I write for the worst TV show in history, I was the worst writer on the worst TV show in history. That takes some doing. But you know, as I go over this story in my head, and it was a long time ago, I'm trying to think, was there any like moral or a lesson or some deeper truth that we could take away from all this? And I think there is, and it's this. The only thing worse than being a whore is being a whore and totally sucking at it. <laughs> And that, my friends, is a fact. Thank you.
Yes, now don't just tell somebody, tell everybody that the Risk Podcast rocks your balls off. Word of mouth means everything. And tell us what you like, what you hope we do next, all that good stuff. Write to Kevin at risk-show.com. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our story editors are Jeff Mersel and Andy Croner. Our associate producers are Timothy Meehan, Emily Altman, and Madison Perry. More podcast episodes every other Tuesday. And remember what the Swahilis say about Risk. On the day of monkey death... All trees become slippery. <laughs> <laughs>